Hello, all you lovely listeners, and welcome back to Season 3 of Therapy Works, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as you might have guessed, a psychotherapist. Each week, I invite you into my therapy room, where I'll be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice who will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. The mission of this podcast is to expand our understanding of therapy and prove that meaningful conversations that may contain difficult emotions can be profoundly healing. Let's see who is joining us this week. So I am delighted to welcome Lisa Smart. Lisa is 56 years old, living in Cambridge. She's now retired, married to Paul, and the mother of two children, Emily and Ben. And you responded to our invitation to talk about yourself and telling us what some of the challenges you've had to face or overcome because you believed it would really support others in a, in a similar situation to you. So I wondered if you could tell us what that is. Thank you, Julia, and thank you so much for letting me be here. So um, my challenge, and um, it's certainly a daily one, is um, how to live my best life without my amazing daughter, Emily. Um, Emily sadly died at the age of 22, just 21 months ago. So young, robbed of her life, her future, and... I was interested in your introductory paragraph. You said mother of Emily and Ben. And of course, you're still her mother, although she's died. Do you want to give us a bit of background to what happened to to tell her story? Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. I I will always be Emily's mum. And I think that's really important to be able to carry that forward. And you just try to find different ways of bringing that into your daily life, really. Mm. So uh, Emily was, um, you know, as a child, anxious, nervous. Um, she was a delight, but she she would never um, do sleepovers or if she went to parties, I had to take her with me. She didn't like doing residential trips. She was a real little home bird. She was not somebody I would ever describe as being resilient and strong. She was anxious and stressful. Um, But as she started to grow, when she was diagnosed, she was in her second year at Loughborough University. And uh, she'd really just blossomed. She had really found her place in the world. It was her uh, first choice university that she absolutely adored. She was there with her long-term boyfriend, uh, who was just the love of her life. And life was great. She was fit and strong and healthy, constantly at the gym. Um, And uh, she was just living life to to the fullest. She had overcome so many personal challenges and had kind of stepped into being confident in herself, trusting herself, engaging with life, being able to be at Loughborough away from home, really beginning to learn how to be an adult and form her own relationships. She was. Yeah. 
And it's, you know, it's a joy to see, I think, particularly when you have a, a child that's a little bit shy and anxious like that, that she could spread her wings and she had started to work through that she would wanted to be a primary school teacher. She adored children. It was her real thing, a real passion in life. Um, so she'd really blossomed and I was really proud of her. Um, and she came home from university in March 2020 when the lockdown occurred and she was saying to me that she'd got some pins and needles in her hands and her feet. And at the time, I think we all put it down to a little bit of exam stress because it was coming up to exam time. She was having to do everything online. Um, and as the exams came and went, the pins and needles hadn't really gone away. So she started to engage with the doctor. All of this was over the phone because it was COVID time. And uh, they had put it down to, you know, maybe stress, but asked her to do some blood tests that didn't reveal anything. The months went on and the pins and needles got progressively worse and she was starting to feel that her core had gone numb. And it was starting to interfere a little bit with her daily life. By about the August time, one of her hands had started to claw. Um, and so she went back to the doctor and saw somebody and they referred her to uh, Adam Brooks Hospital in Cambridge. And she went for an MRI scan. And that sadly revealed that she'd got a tumour within her spinal cord, which at the time we thought would probably be benign because it's incredibly rare to have a cancerous spinal cord tumour. So we were a very practical family and we were all being positive and we talked about she was going to go for surgery to have it removed and we talked about how she could have a year out of university and she would be back. So you were all full of hope. You were all like, we're going to make the best of this. This is going to be okay. And she yeah. was too. Mm, she was uh, worried, nervous, but I don't think any of us at that point thought we were going to have the prognosis that we got. Um, it, it was just devastating. And we were all completely devastated. She'd got a tumour when we thought maybe she'd trapped a nerve or it wasn't anything particularly serious. I think that took the, the legs from underneath us. But to then have surgery and um, a few days after surgery, we were called to see the oncologist. And she sat with Emily and told her that she had a diffused midline glioma with a particularly rare mutation um, and that there were no treatment options Gosh. and that Emily had weeks to months to live oh, at the age of 22. Oh, my know. goodness. Just, and that shock know, of that is still in you. I can, yeah, I can hear like yeah. now. It's yeah. so shocking because... Young people, children should never be given a life limiting and in the end a terminal diagnosis that they should never die before us. No, no, no. I mean, she sat there and listened to what the oncologist said and then she just said to her, am I going to die from this? And the oncologist said, I'm afraid you will, Emily. And It's brutal. You know, it's absolutely brutal. Um, and you know what? I'm her mother. My job's to take care of her. 
and there's nothing I can do. And uh, I think in, in cancer journeys, people often talk about the importance of hope. Mm. And we were given no hope from day one. And it, it might sound quite strange, but in a way that enabled us all to just really focus on today and getting through today and being really present and being there as a family for each other because we knew that our time together was so limited. Um, it, it focuses the mind, shall we say? Yeah. it's. Uh, I mean, I can feel both the deep love you had for Emily and the devastation of that time, but also the kind of depth of feeling about how precious you made that time that you you weren't going through that Very roller coaster so. of scanning waiting for the results hoping hoping being crashed you had as awful as it was you knew that she was going to die so in some mm. ways it kind of heightened your sense of preciousness of her and her life and how did you it manage did. that day to day? There were lots of practical things to do. Um, and I think you're in crisis, if I'm honest. I think mm. in that in that time, a lot of that six months, because it was only six months from the day that she was diagnosed to the day that she died. Um, so quick. We that brought is... her home so quick, mm. so super quick. And the real devastation with the particular cancer that Emily had was that she became paralysed from the feet up oh. and within a couple of months of coming home, she was paralysed from the neck down. Oh. So she could only move her head. And oh, I remember Paul goodness. saying, he, my, my amazing husband Paul, he would, um, Emily's stepdad, he was always the person that would come down and give Emily her first medication in the morning. And, and he said, I used to walk down the stairs and think, She's there, she can't move, and she's just waiting for us to come and do whatever was needed. And I, I'm just in awe, really, of her. Um, you know, I spoke about her being this shy, anxious child that I would never have described as resilient. And the strength that she showed from her diagnosis was just unbelievable. She... Um, she never once complained. She didn't mm. moan. She didn't ask why me. She worried about how we would all cope when she wasn't with us anymore. And she really guided us through that six months. And I think as a family, we're really close. As mother and daughter, we were just had the most special bond. Um but we took a lot of lead from her. She gave us strength. I think we gave her strength. So we took every day as it came. And um, we made as much provision as we could to make her as comfortable as we could at home from a practical perspective. Yeah. And then we just shaped our days around just being together. I mean, I... I'm aware of, I feel so sad and sort of all through my body hearing you and also a kind of fierce 
affection for Emily, who I've never met, and for all of you, how you managed to do that. And it makes sense that she would lead, but it doesn't make sense from that young child who was so nervous. What sense have you made of this anxious child to this incredibly courageous child? I think the biggest thing is Emily, ever since she was very young, she was incredibly caring. People talk about people being kind. And Emily was so kind. And I think that's what drove her in those last six months because it became all about um, how she could make it as easy as she could for all of us. She, you know, within a, a week of being told her prognosis and how dire that was, she wanted to sit with me and talk about her funeral. Wow. And what she wanted. She wrote a letter that she wanted Paul to read out and speak. Uh, she wanted to be have the last words at her funeral. Oh. She dictated letters to me for her loved ones and created memory boxes that she wanted me to have and one for her boyfriend. And she bought gifts for her siblings. Um, and I just, you know, she was incredible. One day she said to me, will you bring all of my things down from my bedroom? And I want to go through everything. And I want to decide what I want to go to charity, what I want to leave to people. Um, the things, the clothes that were particularly important to me and her that I could have made into memory bears. And I just thought, I, I, I don't know how you're doing this. And she, she'd say to me, but I don't want you to do it on your own. I want to do it with you. And that's incredibly precious. Um, you know, she left us, all her loved ones, she left letters. And I know I read my letter from her and... I can hear her in it, but the, you know the strength and the just the thoughtfulness and the kindness, I guess, of that which has made such a difference for all of us has been so important. And it's the loving you that fired her, wasn't it? The loving you into your future without her and wanting you to be best protected or to share it with you. Um, can you remember, I mean, I'm sure you can, you may not want to share this, a line of the letter she wrote to you. Is there something that she said? That I think there's a couple of things for me that really stand out, one of which was um, her saying to me that if she could have been half the mum and wife that I was, she'd have been incredibly proud. Aww. And I thought that was amazing. And also just the messages of thanks and the memories that she had of our time together. Um, but also talking to me about, you know, still going to yoga and going to the gym because she loved watching me get strong and that she wanted Paul and Ben and I to have a great life and go forward. And I think you're exactly right. I think she was, she was wishing us into a future that we'd be okay. She made me promise her a lot that I'd be okay. And, and I am okay, you know, 
some days okay is not great and other days okay is okay Mm. so for somebody so young to be able to do that is just a gift yeah and was she frightened of dying what were her fears she was um frightened of the process and uh she had a small spell in the hospice to have some respite care um a couple of months before she died and she, i think for all of us at that point we didn't know whether she'd come out and fortunately she did but she sat a few weeks in there to manage her pain and while she was there she said to me, I, I'm scared. I don't know what happens. Tell me what happens. And it became really important to me that as her mum, I was the person that helped talk her through that. Um, Gosh, and I read that great that. book by Dr. Catherine Mann. No, I know. Yeah. It's not with a conversation you should have to have, is it? Yeah, with the end in mind. Brilliant book for anybody that's facing into that. I think I read that. I spoke to the um, hospice doctor and then I was able to sit with her and just talk to her about what I'd learned and what I thought it would be like at the end and to reassure her, as I did from day one of her prognosis, that I'd be with her. I would be with her every step of the way and she'd never be on her own. Um, I, I was really fortunate. I had an amazing therapist from the hospice who helped me for the six months before Emily died and then for a period afterwards. And she would talk to me a lot about anticipatory grief mm. and, and, you know, you're already thinking of the future that you're not going to have. I think she, you know, really sort of helped me as well be able to have those conversations with Emily and nothing was off bounds for us. It was all about being really open, really honest and having conversations full of love and care to just support each other. Um, and that six months was the hardest time you can imagine but in a lot of ways it was also so beautiful because I've learned there's no greater privilege than caring for somebody in the last days of their life and for Emily who became so incredibly debilitated it was almost full circle from the nurturing caring for as a baby through until the moment that we lost her. And and I wouldn't change that for a moment. It's almost like the intensity of all of the pain of all of you, Emily, Ben, you and Paul, is also matched by the intensity of the love and the kind of extraordinariness of how you each kept each other going. So that there's this kind of depth of connection and depth of support that still holds you up now. So as much as it was agony, you felt close, so, so close. And it's the love that kept you going, all of you. None of us could have done this without each other. 
Mm. And yeah, we were so close and that does still sustain me today. And it is, I think, something that people don't kind of fully recognise that the past is such a part of the present and how you manage that and how you face it with honesty and truth and love protects you from regrets but also helps you in the present now that Emily's died. Mm -hmm. And I think there's this confusion in some ways that if I don't if I don't look at it, if I don't talk about it, then then we're going to carry on and everything's going to be okay, a kind of magical thinking. But then you go back and you wonder, well, was she scared? What was she frightened of? What didn't I say? And there is no right or wrong. Everyone does the best they can given, you know, the circumstances they're in. But I can really hear for you that the trust and the depth of connection that trust enabled you know, there must have been days when you felt terrible or she felt terrible or times, but you each could help each other because you weren't hiding from each other. So there wasn't a kind of barrier between you. There wasn't a gap. There was this openness and honesty so that you could be together and help each other. I think you're right. Everybody does things in their own way, in their different way. We don't regret the things we did in that time. And I can honestly, with pride, I think, say that we gave Emily the best death that we could, mm. which sounds like a very strange thing to say, but I can't tell you the importance of that honesty and the fact that we could have those really open, honest conversations then enabled us to have days and times when we didn't have to go there. You know, we talked about Emily's funeral very early on. She told us exactly what she wanted, how she wanted it to be, where she wanted it to be. And then we almost didn't need to talk about that again. We could no, do the nice it. things together. Mm. We'd recorded it. We absolutely had, you know, her dictating the letters to me. I remember just sobbing listening to her mm. as I'm typing them all up and the tears on the keyboards and thinking oh my god when are we going to get through this and we sort of you know had two weeks of that where we'd keep picking them up and changing them and then I just thought I'd got over it all and then she said do you know actually I think they'd be much nicer if they were handwritten so then I had to write them all out <laughs> and go through it all again but even those in themselves were so special times because I I learned things about Emily and in some of the relationships she'd got with her best friend and her boyfriend that I probably wouldn't have known. I got to see things about Emily that I didn't know. Yeah. And and yet we were the closest mum and daughter I think you could ever have. Mm. Um and, e and equally that, I know I'm really blessed to have, have had that sort of closeness. And whilst I'd love for it to have gone on for the rest of my life, we had a relationship that I'd have taken that above having, you know, not so good relationship for a longer time. Yeah.
you said Paul's her stepdad and you said siblings. Mm. So I wondered about the others. Is is her biological dad part of your life and family? Uh, so Emily's dad is, um, she would see him every couple of weeks, every week. He lives very locally and close and he saw her while she was poorly. Um and he has uh, a son and a daughter, so Emily has two uh, two other siblings on his side, who she was incredibly close to. And then I have um, my son Ben, who Emily lived with, and Ben is nineteen now. Um, so that's that's tough. I feel real sadness for. Um, Ben and her other brother and sister, Jake and Ruby, that they don't have, sorry, that they don't have Emily in their lives. Um, Ben is a very different child to Emily. He doesn't like to talk about how he feels. Um, He's doing okay. He's living a great life. Um, but I guess I'm thoughtful about when that might hit him in the future. So could he have those deep conversations with Emily, even if he doesn't have them now with you? No, he didn't. When she was poorly and dying, he didn't really know what to say to her. He was great with her. He'd sit with her and chat with her and what have you. But they didn't have a deep, meaningful conversation about it. Um, In the same way as Emily wrote me a letter, she wrote a letter to Ben and to Jake and Ruby to, you know, give them hope for the future and tell them how much she loved them. And they all had an opportunity to come and say goodbye to her, which they did. But I don't think he wanted to go there. And now when I sort of talk to him about, you know, I, I give him space. I, I guess as his mum, that's all I can do is to love him and care for him and give him space to be able to talk when he wants to. Um, but he doesn't really like to go there because he doesn't want to feel too sad. It makes him sad. So he'd prefer to just distance from it a little bit. And I guess I do wonder when he's older, you know, his own children or getting married, that it will hit him harder. And I, I mean, it might well do. And I think also it's influenced by his age and by his gender. So, of course, everyone is unique and you can't kind of make commonalities, but men tend to want to move forward and get on and women tend to want to remember and feel the pain and kind of stay close to the pain. And, you know, that's well researched. And so it sounds like he has within all of you, all of the resources and the letter from Emily and the memories that he can call on when he dares trust to kind of feel the pain. But at 19, you don't want to be a sad 19-year-old, a grieving boy. You want to be a young man who's kind of getting on with life and going forward. And so, and be the same as your mates. It's a very complex negotiation. 
um, that he will need to find a way for himself. And I think the other bit to add is that, as you've kind of said, is grieving isn't a one-stop shop, that it's an ongoing negotiation. And so, as you said, at different times, at different phases, he will maybe face the pain more, another loss, maybe breaking up with a girlfriend or or even, as you said, a marriage or something that connects him where, of, where the presence of her absence is very overwhelming. Would he listen to this conversation, for instance? He may do. Um, yeah, he may do. I'll have to see. <laughs> I thought it was interesting you saying about... Um, the gender piece there because and the bit about women liking to to sort of live over it and hold it close and and I think I find that in that you know in those those early days when Emily died I don't think I was quite prepared for the sort of visceral yearning and searching for her and feeling like well, she was here yesterday. How can she not be here now? It just, it's unthinkable. It is still unthinkable now. And the missing her physical uh, presence, the hugs, oh, the smell, just, her skin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then your brain sort of playing tricks on you as if, well, she's just back at university and she'll be back, but she's not. And the not being able to speak to her. That real, real yearning and searching does dissipate. It does start to go. But it's very embodied, um, isn't it? You're the, pointing to your chest. It's uh, like you feel it in your body. Oh, I can feel it. It's I like feel your heart it. I is do. breaking. I feel it inside. Yeah. Yeah. And you and you're left with. I've described it to people sometimes as being feeling like you've got this ulcer inside so close to the surface and you know it's there and you bang it um, every so often and it really hurts but there are also times and I think it speaks to your point of wanting to sort of hold on to the grief is sometimes you want to stick your finger in there and give it a right old poke to just take you back to that place and I didn't think you'd want to hold on to the grief, but in some respects I really do because it's become a bit of a special private place for me to be with Emily, which I find quite strange. Is that, you know, do other people talk about that? Yes. I mean, uh, it's the, the intensity of the pain keeps her close to you because there's this sense of her presence in the pain and in the love of missing her. And it can be confusing both ways. One, why would I want to feel this pain? And yet mm -hmm. it's my private, most intimate pain, intimate grief in relation, my very private, intimate relationship with my beautiful daughter. And also it can influence when you don't feel so much pain and you're actually having a nice time, you can have a, another feeling on top of that. It's like, oh, I shouldn't be having a nice time. I need to show Emily that I love her and I'm missing her 
although she told me it's okay, I don't always feel that it's okay. I think you can, you feel guilty at sometimes laughing or having a good time because whoever would have thought that you could say when you've lost your child that there's still joy, you know, I still laugh. And and you learn that grief can live alongside joy, which is bizarre, but it does. And I think, you know, you're having a good day. It's a great day, but I know it's just so close to the surface. Um, and I think that's hard sometimes to explain to, to other people that almost all joy is slightly tinged with some sadness because Emily's not there to see it. She's not part of it. I can't share it with her. Um, and they're two parts of the same coin, aren't they? The grief and joy. Mm. And I, what I'm really aware of is that you've given yourself permission to have the joy. And I'm curious, what are the things that give you joy, although they're tinged with the missing Emily? Um, I, there's a few things for me. Um, fitness and movement's really important. And yeah. I do lots of fitness. That's great. It makes a real difference for me. And I know that I think in the early days where I was felt so exhausted because grief's actually exhausting. It's really yeah, tiring. Very I think there's a lot when you've been through a trauma like that, you, you you're still trying to process it. And I think almost it, it reacts in your body. But but now I I'm back at the gym and doing yoga, etc. And loving that. And I I do it not only because it's really good for me and makes me feel better, but I I feel really close to Emily doing that because it was really important part of her life. Um, I have a um, a pet therapy dog, Poppy, and I take Poppy into Addenbrooke's Hospital and visit the children's wards with her, including the children's cancer ward. And that has become so important for me. And it's such a joy. Yeah. And again, I think Emily would love that. She'd love me being around all those children with the dog. I think in those moments, it, 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 it gives me a closeness to her. And it's interesting that I'd started the pets therapy work um, uh, a little while, about six months before Emily was diagnosed. But I wasn't doing certainly wasn't doing the children's wards. I certainly wasn't doing the oncology wards. And I feel like I wouldn't have been able to face into those. It was almost a part of the world I didn't want to see. I had a perfect world that wasn't touched by sadness and by cancer. And now I, feel, I just feel really blessed that I can go in and be able to do that. I feel like because of the experience I've had, I think Emily and her illness and her death has made me a much more caring and compassionate person. And that's become really important to me. Yeah. So that gives me joy. And that in psychological terms, you've probably heard of this, is called post-traumatic growth, which is that it never diminishes or takes away from the devastation of your loss of the trauma of her death. 
And also you recognize that going through that experience, that you have expanded, that your capacity to live and engage with life, about what matters with life, your recognition of what you thought you could never survive and live with joy is expanded. And the meaning of life about doing things for others, with others, grows, and that that gives you meaning. um, And that does feel like growth. I think that's so true. I My world's completely different. And I think being more compassionate and caring about other people, I have a deep, deep desire in the future to be able to help parents that are going through being given a terminal diagnosis for their child and also post their death. Mm. Um I think in the early days when Emily died, I wanted desperately to find somebody who would be able to show me that it was going to be okay. And I was really blessed that a a beautiful lady from our village who sadly lost her son in very tragic circumstances, she came to see me and she said, there is life before and there is life after and you will be okay. And at a time when you are in such despair to just have somebody be able to, you know, and I can visibly see her. I can see her walking around the village. I can see her walking her dog. I can see her laughing. That was really special for me. And I think I'd like to be able to help others with that. It gave you light and you want to be able to give other people light at Mm. the end of their very dark tunnel. I've got this question at the back of my mind, which you may not want to answer, is about her dad, because I'd never heard from you how you are, that you two are the only two that are her parents. So in some ways, you two are the only two that have that feeling of parenting, although your relationship is very different as parents but you're separated. And why I'm asking is that often in families where the parents are separated, there's a lot more complexity and how you negotiate that and how you manage that. So we, whilst we have a good relationship, it's quite amicable. So Emily's dad is not Ben's dad, just to say as well. So I don't have have a regular relationship with him um he was a very uh quite a closed individual in so much as was never really a talker and um we haven't sat and talked about how it is for him um and I know he's okay and we have occasional messages and 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 such we don't have that sort of relationship really where we where we talk about it. I think it's an interesting one in so much as something I've thought about quite a lot around um, Paul, my husband, Emily's mm. stepdad, in that grief can make you very selfish. It is quite a selfish emotion, I think. And um, I think if you are in a relationship with the father of your child that's died, I can imagine that sometimes that can be really difficult because everybody deals with their loss and their grief in a different way. And yet for me, um, 
it's been to a degree easier because uh, I was Emily's primary parent and Paul has his own anguish and desperate loss for Emily but he's not her biological dad that had been there from the beginning. I think that's been helpful for us in our relationship in a strange way and that I haven't had to compete. You're exactly right. We've not had to compete and maybe it sounds really, really selfish, but sort of she was mine and, and therefore I can feel like I can talk about my, my loss with him um, so openly and honestly, honestly without having to feel like maybe I'm making it more difficult for him. Mm. Because um, there, there can be a real complexity in family systems about hierarchies mm. of who is the chief mourner, of whose loss is the greatest, whose loss is legitimate, whose isn't, who's in charge, who holds the power. And it sounds like that your relationship with Paul is so good and so securely attached that he can both legitimize his own loss, that he really loved her and really misses her and took care of her and was part of your whole relationship with her. And also he can give you space to be her primary parent and in some ways the primary mourner. And so there isn't a battle yeah. going on between you of you don't deserve to feel this, I feel worse. And it doesn't sound like you have that with her dad either. No, no. I think we've all found our own place in it, in, in that hierarchy, really. And I mean, Paul has just been incredible. Um, and he's also curious and inquisitive and likes me to be able to try to explain how I feel. Um, and I remember in the early days, I bought um, a, a small statue, which you've probably seen, which I think is, is a statue that's supposed to depict grief. And it, it's the external view of somebody, but there's nothing in the middle. Mm. And him saying to me, is that how it feels? And I said, yes, yeah, exactly how it feels. To the outside world, I'm still... Lisa, I'm still complete, I'm still me, but inside it's not the same. There's this enormous Emily-shaped really hole. Helpful. A huge Emily-shaped hole. She was only small, but it's left a big hole. Mm. And 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 I think it's really helpful that he he gives me that space. And I think that's really important in finding people. I'm lucky I have it in Paul, I have it in you know, others, really close friends, etc., who I can just be me with whatever me is on that given day without me having to comfort them for their loss, which does make me sound really selfish. But sometimes it's really hard having the strength to comfort someone else when I'm still struggling to come to terms with it. Yeah, and it can cause a lot of complexity in relationships when it sounds like Paul's great love for you gives him the capacity to really listen, which is the kind of key aspect really of communication that is often misunderstood. So he can fully hear you. He doesn't have to try and fix you. And in being heard and allowed, you then in some way do experience a release and a relief and that that is true of many of your relationships. And I guess there's two last things I want to ask you because we're kind of mm -hmm. coming in to land the plane to the end is Emily's friends. 
I imagine you're still in touch with Emily's friends and I imagine that's quite bittersweet in that they are alive and you want to have a relationship with them, but it also puts you in touch with her death. Indeed, uh, Emily had a childhood friend, Amy, that she'd had from being so young. Um, Emily's diagnosis through to death was bookended by Amy's pregnancy. Oh, my goodness. Amy had her first baby, a little girl, with the middle name Emily, of course, and she gave birth to her little girl the day after Emily's funeral. My goodness. That's so poignant. um, So poignant. And I think with Emily's absolute love of Amy, but her love of children, she would have just adored little Luna, who is adorable. Um, And Amy's fantastic and she comes and visits and brings Luna with her. And it's a joy, an absolute joy. But you're quite right, it is bittersweet. You know, it's bittersweet seeing them going on with their lives, her friends at uni, her boyfriend. I'm so delighted that they can move on and do things in their lives. But yes, it's hard. It's really hard to see. They're having what Emily was robbed of. Yes, yes. Emily's graduation, you know, weddings, babies, just future. The future. Um, And they're all the big things you miss, but actually, you know, it's also the really tiny things. I cry every time I iron because Emily always had a lot of ironing for me to do. (laughs) And it's the little things. It's going shopping. It's watching reality TV or whatever it was that I would do with Emily. But it's the day-to-day minutiae of a giggle in the car or watching the same TV programme or there must be a particular food you both loved or she hated and you love or it's all of those things that are sort of agony. Yes, I don't think you're prepared for because I think you can, you almost steal yourself for the birthdays, the anniversaries, all those things. But it's the little bits, little things that just can knock you off guard. Um, But also uh, the memories that are really special because you look back at those things and they're the things also that sustain as well as hurt. Yeah. So do you have a question for me? I do. And which is an interesting one is when you lose somebody so special and people talk about the importance of the firsts and it's hard the first birthdays the first anniversaries etc I found as I'm now approaching the second anniversary of Emily's death that the seconds have been so much harder um I found her second birthday without her Christmas was just really difficult and coming up to the second anniversary and I don't know whether that's part of she feels further away and I'm going into another year without her, or whether it is that I think in that first year you feel more able to be open about your grief, and in the second year maybe you do more of it privately. But I wondered if if that is something that you find with people, that the reality of the second year just makes it so much harder. I think that is very common. I mean, particularly for a child death in that I think there is a sort of cultural expectation 
that you kind of do all the work of grief in the first year and then it gets better as you go forward. And I think the level of the loss is equal to the level of the love and the emotional investment in the person that's died. And in that first year, as you said, you could be more open, you could talk more. And also you were probably a bit numb, even in the worst of times, you probably a bit of you is protected because our brains are wired to protect us against things that we find completely unbearable. And in the second year, that natural protection is probably reduced. You're, there isn't a numbness, there isn't. And so you're feeling it much more viscerally without the constant support of everybody around you and also the kind of self-permission that I am the grieving mum. There's some kind of cultural expectation that you would be going back to normal. Um, and there isn't a, a normal. That there is how you are refinding yourself given that such a devastating loss has happened to you. And it sounds, you know, I can really hear that you find joy, that you are living your best life, you have really good moments and also moments of un um, unbearable pain. Um, and I think what's helpful is to not have expectations of how you should or shouldn't be, but give yourself permission to be who you are and have the feelings you have in the moment that you have them. I think it's back to that, you know, being honest and loving and compassionate as Emily was with us and we will always be with her and having some of that for myself as well. That sounds real you. deep wisdom that love is how you survive um, and keeping her close and how you have touchstones to her memory, which it sounds like she created beautiful ones in her memory boxes and her letters. I'm sure you took videos and photographs. And and so that kind of moving in and moving out of those touchstones is also really important. I imagine you have a playlist and music and all kinds of things that connect you to I her. do. I do. She was always my creator of playlists and she did one for me before she died that oh, I would wow. always treasure. And while she's not physically here anymore, my my love for her is as strong as it ever was and just in a different way. So what would you say to her if you could see her for one more minute? I would tell her how special she was, how much I loved her and how incredibly grateful I am for everything she ever gave me. Mm. Yeah. You'd really want her to know how much you loved her, how special she was, and how grateful you are for her life and all that she gave you in her life, herself, her love, her being. And that is a huge part of you. It's a space where she was, but also it's a space where she is. Yeah, I, I like to feel like I hold her in a space in my heart forever. Yeah. And that's a beautiful way to end, Lisa, that you hold Emily in your heart forever. Thank you so much for being a part Thank of this you. podcast. Thank you so much, Julia. 
One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialize in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. Hello, Sophie and Emily. We're going to talk about this incredibly moving, incredibly painful, but also beautiful conversation I had with Lisa Smart about her daughter, Emily, that died. And of course, being Emily and you being an Emily was was poignant for me. What was your first responses? My first response was just sadness. I, you know, my first response was, I'm not sure I have anything hugely meaningful to say, but just that overwhelming sense of love and grace was yeah what I came away with and obviously just huge, huge sadness. Yes, I definitely cried listening to this one and it felt like the heart of the whole story was really a love story. That's nice. It's a love story between mother and daughter and how together made me think, you know, when she talked about her being a nervous child, about some different types of strength Um and there's a particular kind of strength that comes from compassion and love that is maybe different to not being scared of things or of being kind of extroverted in the world or um, physical bravery. There's different kinds of strength, aren't there? And it seemed like for her, that experience really brought out how powerful her ability to love both the daughter and the mother, to love each other. And I think one of the bits that you, a line that you said that really stood out for me that is both about their story, but sort of speaks to wider things in life. As you said, people sometimes underestimate how much of their past is in the present. You know, in that sense, you were talking about it in this case, how much Emily helped her her parents and siblings love them into the future and how resourcing that has been for them. I think so often we underestimate that, that so much of our experience of the now is through the lens of the past. And neurologically, that's true. You know, when we're experiencing things, our brain is passing that experience through memory. Like, has this happened before? Should we be scared of this? Is this something that's positive, negative? And that's all drawing on our past experience. And I think sometimes it can be a really helpful thing to notice how much you may be living in your past or living in your imagined future and not in your present. I find it really helpful for myself and and talk about it with clients. It's like sometimes it's better just remember to literally sit and look around the room and notice that you're safe in this moment. Right now, nothing bad is happening to me because we can just live in fear of what has or will and forget that in this moment you're okay. Right, sort of bringing it back to basics. I was also thinking, you know, when you're talking about the preparing for the future, how what an amazing job Emily did, thinking of all of her family and her boyfriend and her, um, you know, her family, like blended family. 
And I think Lisa mentioned a book by Dr. Catherine Mannix, which I would highly recommend to anyone with the end in mind. And it's this incredible book, which is really about preparing for death. And she talks about how as humans, we're the only species with the sort of conscious ability to actually think about death and think about what that is going to be like and how in our sort of current society, we've sort of learned not to do that in society, but that actually death, the actual experience of death, has a natural progression in the same way that pregnancy, that birth has a natural progression progression and that our society at the moment we're very good at helping prepare people for those things so you get a lot of information about pregnancy what birth is going to be like how it's going to progress but people don't prepare you for what death is going to look like and she describes the actual process of death of what happens to your body and how that actually Although our first instinct might be that that is a terrifying thing to learn. And if you are a person who's dying, maybe that's the last thing that you want to hear. And she says, actually, her experience is that the opposite is true, is that people who are dying, it's a huge relief for them to know what that process is and that it's actually generally a relatively peaceful process. It's not a sort of traumatic, dramatic process in the way that you kind of see on TV. And I would just really recommend anyone who's kind of interested in this area reading her book and we can put it on the show notes. I really echo that. When my husband's mother was dying, that book was so helpful in exactly those ways of just taking the fear out of it, making it feel very natural and that he could have some sense of when it was going to happen as well, Um, that there were signs he could look out for when they were closer and take a lot of the fear away from this like mysterious black hole that we live in culturally about death. You'd think this would be impossible with a, a young person or a child dying, which is like a death out of time. You should never bury your own child. But there is a huge difference between a good death and a bad death. And I think as, as you two are saying, because we're ignorant and we don't want to look because we're frightened, we are then ill-informed and more likely to have a bad death. And a bad death is obviously one that is traumatic or one that is full of pain, but also one that leaves lots of shards of hurt and and um, regret in the family that where the past really does injure the present. And it felt to me, although this was so fast from being healthy and at university and then dying within six months, this was a very beautiful death. Um, And I could hear in Lisa's voice and I've heard in other families, so that to take it out of her specifically, how daring to face what death looks like, what death feels like. And creating those wonderful memories, the playlists she made for her mum, the letters that she, first of all, had her type and then handwrite. I mean, it made me cry so much. But those letters, you know, it's the second time in our podcast letters have come up. It's different with Zoe. But I do think letters are wonderful 
resources for us to go to and read again and again, which I think in our kind of digital age, we forget how precious letters can be. Mm, to hold an object that someone you loved has touched and written, and that's their handwriting, has a lot of other sensory layers of tangibly being close to someone, unlike digital. I wondered, Mum, whether you, if someone was listening to this who has lost someone through a much more traumatic death and is left with lots of whys and not knowings, and what would you guide or advise them to do if they haven't had this opportunity or if it ended in the way what how what do you say to people who are left with those questions to some extent it's about accommodation isn't it it's kind of recognizing what you can find out so with some people there is more information they can go on a sherlock holmes mission and talk to people and try and get pieces of the jigsaw back in place but for others, there will always be pieces of the jigsaw missing. And, and the work I do is find a way of really, in a sort of tangible way, recognizing what it is in those pieces that they're missing and grieve for them as well as grieve for the person. So mm, double grief. You, yeah, it's a double grief. You focus on what you wanted to know. You focus on what you imagine. You focus on what you fear. And by giving yourselves a narrative for that, then you can find a way, and I think a narrative is really helpful, of living with what you don't know. Because I think the thing that is so difficult is that when you don't do that, it circulates and ruminates. And you talked about this before, it keeps coming back and haunting you. And of course, it, things come back anyway, because we're not robots. But I think if we really explore what we wished we'd had or known or done and allow ourselves to um, acknowledge that and feel the pain of that that supports us. The other thing this conversation made me think of was that wonderful book, Five Regrets of the Dying by Bonnie. Oh, that um, the nurse, the hospice nurse, she writes about how um, when she worked in a hospice for many, many years, people's regrets while they were dying always fell into these like five different categories and they are I wish I hadn't worked so much I wish I had what was it like told the people I loved them I loved them more um I wish I'd spent more time with friends I wish I'd spent more time with family that I mean they're all on a sort of similar I wish I'd, I like, wish I'd had the life, courage to express my feelings yeah mm. I wish I had let myself be happier Mm, that's such an interesting one, isn't it? Mm. It's like, let exactly. myself be happier. Mm. Bonnie Ware, she's sort called of... it. I mean, we'll put the link in that as well. But it felt to me that we learned from Emily and obviously from the relationship she formed with Lisa, that she really knew what mattered. She really had a yeah. deep understanding that love is the thing that matters and telling people that you love them, telling people that you want them to be happy into their future, giving them permission, a bit like the Richard E. Grant, like have a, have a pocket full of happiness. And I think that we forget that in this crazy, busy, achieving, wanting, keeping, pushing to stop and let ourselves be happier would be quite a good one in itself. <laughs> and in that sense, yeah. you know, when they, you were talking about, she was describing this, 
something of who knew you could feel joy and intense grief alongside each other. Allowing yourself to be happy doesn't mean letting everything be waiting for everything to be perfect. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's a good point. It's like you can both feel really sad or annoyed about the things that are hard in life and let yourself be happy about the things which are okay and those things can coexist. One doesn't need to wipe the other out. Yes, you can have all sorts of stresses kind of hanging over you and still find little moments where you can just enjoy what you actually have. So it's, I think it sort of comes full circle to what Sophie was saying at the beginning about when you are feeling really overwhelmed, that thing of just sitting and being and reminding yourself of the things that you have and the things around you. I think it comes back to that sort of grounding of what is fundamental. One of the helpful grounding exercises in that sense that was taught to me was if you sit on your chair and your feet on the floor and you turn your head as far as you can to the left, keeping your eyes open and just letting your eyes take in and see what you can see in the room and, and not be elsewhere, be like, oh, there's the cupboard, there's the floor, that's the window. And turn your head very, very slowly, the full degrees all the way around to your right and do the same and check in with yourself three times on the side, in the middle when you're facing forward and to the right saying, am I okay? And you don't need, doesn't matter if the answer is yes or no, it's just a registering moment. And because the fear centers of our brain are highly stimulated by visual cues, essentially what you're doing is you're priming your brain to take in the fact that right now that you are safe, giving the brain the data to calm your fear center and your amygdala down by going, really taking in the visual information that right now nothing bad is happening to you, um, which can help bring you out of the fear of the past or the future and into this moment, which is just like actually. My brain has noticed now that it, that nothing bad is happening in this moment, even if it has happened in the past. That's excellent, Sophie. Really like that. I haven't heard that one before. Yeah, I find it helpful. And I wondered if you did have any words or thoughts about if a couple are both the biological parents of a child that's dying or died, and they're struggling to make space for each other because they're both you know, in the thick of grief. Do you have any words of wisdom about how they can support each other or what helps? I think it's that's a good question. So I think it's two things. I think one, kind of ensure that each of you uses your friendship group to go for walks with to your siblings, other people that you can talk to. Often clients say to me, you know, both of us are drowning. We can't save each other. But I think that other couple exercise of sitting down or going for a walk and taking it in turns for half an hour to speak and be heard where the other person just listens and um, reflects back but doesn't ask questions or say anything themselves and then swap because then you're having a, a very simple update of what's going on with each other and it's not asking you to actually support it's just in some ways asking you to really listen which is is isn't easy, but I think it's a very good. So I often do that with couples and they do it kind of once a week or once every two weeks. And is it also just allowing that you might grieve differently? Yeah. That what grief looks like for you might look very different in your partner. And it doesn't mean that the level of love or intensity of loss is less or more. Completely. One of the most common things I say, particularly when I see whole families, where I see parents and their siblings, is I say, you know, you all look different on the outside. 
and maybe you're sharing it. Some of you are crying, some of you are angry, some of you aren't doing or saying anything. Some of you want to be here with me, some of you really don't want to be here with me. <laughs> but I would I kind of allow that and allow all your differences and also recognize that if I could put microscope internally, that the level of the love that you feel and the level of the loss that you feel for this person is very likely to be the same. Just how you feel it and share it and express it can be very different, but don't judge that as to how much grief you're feeling. So thank you, Emily and Sophie. And thank you, Lisa, so much. And thank you, Emily, for giving us such wisdom through your mum. And I think all of us that listen to this conversation will remember you, Emily, and take you with us to inform us and shape our decisions and how we are. And so I'm so grateful for Lisa for having the courage to come and introduce her to us and for us to learn more about her and her whole family. So thank you. And thank you everyone for listening. If this is a podcast that you'd like to share with others, do please pass it on to your friends and family and do please rate and review and subscribe to the Therapy Works podcast. <laughs>